Hello. Welcome to the Flight Sites MMA podcast, episode 60-something, I believe. <laughs> That's how far we are into this. Um, the UFC event this weekend is so insulting <laughs> that I choose not to discuss it. Um, actually, the, you know, the, the previous ones were worse, but you know, aside from Gasolum, uh, Cannoneer, and what is it, Royville Pantoja? Yeah. Which we can talk about after they happen, honestly, because... Pretty this, much. This, this, we're not going to do it. We're just, we're not going to give it attention. They're going to keep putting on terrible cards. We're just going to do other stuff. Yeah, right? I like those fights, but it's bad. Yeah, and there was the Bellator and PFL events uh, that happened over the weekend, and they were fine. They were okay. <laughs> as, as much as a Bellator or PFL event could be fine. Sometimes those events are really good. This is like the guys that were supposed to be good just didn't really look like much. Um, so you couldn't even be excited about the guys that you felt better about. Like, uh, Megaman Karamov didn't look as impressive as, uh, I remember him being in the past. Cause I know the guy he fought like struggles with some pretty mid dudes. So, yeah, but Sadabusi is also like nine feet tall. Yeah. For sure. Middleweight, <laughs> but point stands. It was just weird. And yeah, then, uh, true. yeah, Bellator, Magomedov lost. So that was kind of a bummer, but I mean, I like Stotts. He's good, but, uh, you know, you just want to see all these guys who had great careers in ACB or whatever. You know, do is well against Karimov, Americans. Is Karimov that bantamweight who is now a heavyweight? Yeah. Yes, Karimov. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I guess that explains that. <laughs> I guess it explains why he looked the way he uh, he did. Mm-hmm. He's insanely chubby. Like, I don't think he has anything. He didn't fight last weekend, did he? No. No. Yeah. He's just massive now. That's news in I don't think he's going to make bantamweight anytime <laughs> soon. He's, he's bantamweight the same way my coach thinks I'm a bantamweight. So <laughs> That's right. There That's you go. Right. It's the height. It's only the height that matters. If you're short, mm-hmm. you can be a bantamweight. <laughs> Daniel Cormier can be a bantamweight. <laughs> Daniel Cormier definitely can be a weight if he c- cuts out, cuts off all his limbs and becomes a torso. He could do he it. Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Become a plimbo male. <laughs> I'm a no, no limb heaven, doughy torso. <laughs> only elite, elite listeners will get that one. <laughs> anyway. So instead of talking about actual things that are going on in terms of events, uh, we're going to answer some questions from our Patreon subscribers instead. Call them patrons sometimes. Sometimes people call them Patreons, which is not right. Um, but yeah, people there pay ten dollars. There. there was a pause there before because I was going to say Patreon subscribers. Caught myself. Um, but yeah, ten dollars to ask us a question. You're like, whoa, ten dollars, that's a lot for a question. But we're gonna spend the entire podcast on three questions. So it's like, yeah, you get a lot for your money's worth. Um, plus, I mean, the other tiers are not that far away and yield better stuff. So it's just a way to encourage you to not spend the ten dollars and to use it for something else. Um <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're gonna we're gonna get on with the questions. So first question is from this fella who all right, so background of why i made this mistake here's my excuse so there's a kid that i went to high school with named steve and i don't know when it started happening but he started calling himself like stavi and then it was like stavi and it was like okay it burned my brain that that is how you say that spelling and that's how this guy's name is spelled s-h-t-a-v-e i don't know if that's his full name or what but i'm like okay and that's how i said it and he's like, no, it's just, it's just like shave. And I'm like, that's, I've never heard that before in my life, but okay. Stavia is, it sounds like a, like a reference to some kind of German thing from World War II. Couldn't tell you. Obviously, I don't know because I messed it up and I probably messed I, it I up mean, again. The, I mean, there's, there was also the Stasi, which was uh, the East German uh, secret police. 
Is that what it's a reference to? <laughs> Curry boy? Is that what you're doing? I'm choosing to believe that's a reference to that thing yeah. because it's uh, it's the most unsettling one. I like unsettling <laughs> Yeah, but his name things. is Curry Boy and his handle is uh, Shtave Likes Soup. So I think he can get what he's about from that. Um, but yeah, we, we, we talk, we talk. I know him pretty well, but I can't say his name. Anyway, uh, he is asking a pretty technical question about combat sports, which I think we can handle. Uh, that's kind of our, our, our thing. Um, but he wants to know what changes in tactics there are in regard to stance matchups across various disciplines. For example, in MMA, very often we talk about like the southpaw double attack or the open stance, you know, double attack that becomes available when, you know, the, the lead feet create that opening where your bellies are facing the same way, your chest are facing the same way. Um, that, that's open stance. And then if your you know, chest are facing opposite ways, that's closed stance. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. Um, so that creates, you know, different types of strikes that you can use and all sorts of things. So he just wants to know what are some of the differences between different disciplines that you guys understand. And then I can lend some, uh, info on what I think about wrestling and that in those terms. But why don't you guys uh, talk about some striking stuff? Well, first of all, with MMA, you, you have to acknowledge that. Well, the difference between striking sports and MMA is that obviously in MMA wrestling is allowed. And so in striking sports, everyone who stands, uh, who prefers the open stance matchup is usually does usually does that because uh, they either have a really good uh, lead hand or lead foot attack, um, and they are naturally like uh, that side dominant, or it, it's because uh, because of the opposite. It's because their power hand uh, and their power leg is located uh, in the back of the stance. But in MMA, some MMA fighters choose to fight that way also because uh, they just wrestle with uh, that side forward. And uh, I, I believe this is the difference he wanted to point out uh, later. And uh, yeah, with striking, I don't know, where, where do you really begin breaking down? I guess we should just break down what uh, attacks are usually available from that dynamic. If it helps, I can give you one place. of the follow-up questions, which is, are there any closed stance tactics that boxers use that we don't see in MMA? Do you want well, to incorporate that into your The, the most obvious one is, uh, well, it's not like, it's not really unused at all. As more, It's more of a, an uh, underutilized tactic, which is just basically just jabbing up the guy who's, who is, stands either southpaw and, uh, or orthodox and the, other, the opposite way. And uh, lead hooking is also another one. So basically, off the top of my head, the only guys at uh, the highest level who do that, that I know of, are Robbie Lawler and uh, Dustin Poirier. And that's pretty John much McDessie. it. John McDessie. John McDessie, yeah, that's another one. But I mean, I was talking about the tippy top. And uh, John McDessie is kind of like... John McDessie is really cool a, a top five uh, MMA striking battle. Highly recommend. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about just because I feel like people kind of overcomplicate it when it comes to those sorts of matchups, specifically in MMA. I'm not yeah. really all that familiar with other striking sports, at least to the level of, you know, the smarter people on staff. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems like a lot of the thing is just it attacks similar vulnerabilities, but with different tools that are available because of the stance matchup. For instance, the open stance double attack that we mentioned, it's a lot of it's just the same sort of like difference between straight shots and shots around the side that, for instance, the jab hook attacks and close stance, right? Like you play the jab and when guys try to parry that across, you go with the hook. It's something similar when you go with the straight and when guys try to parry that across or slip to the outside, you hit them with the head kick. The openings are the same. It's just sort of different tools. So in sports where there aren't as many, well, where kicks aren't allowed for boxing, I would imagine that it would be more about 
uh, playing off the hand fight a bit, uh, you know, jabbing. It's more about yeah, really like foot positioning because so yeah. like in MMA you see a lot of this uh, idea that open stance matchup always mean that uh, you have to outside yeah. foot positioning. Yeah, <laughs> and in boxing it's uh, I mean it's not really a problem because everyone knows how to jab from the inside angle. Everyone knows how to hook from the inside angle, and everyone also knows how to operate from within the inside angle with your rear hand as well. Yeah. And uh, in MMA, everyone thinks that if you want to use your rear hand, it always means that you need to step with your foot outside and you always need to take that outside angle. And everyone thinks that, uh, and well, well, Robbie Lawler and Dustin Poirier and uh, Ross and uh, John McDessie always exploit that by just basically jabbing people's, uh, jabbing and hooking people's faces off because everyone just ta- gives them that angle. Yeah. And Conor McGregor also kind of exploited that inside angle by punching across himself with uh, his rear hand. I think it's also uh, the same sort of overcomplication happens when it comes to like angles, because I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of people don't really understand the sort of close stance angles that people take, or at least MMA fighters don't really take them, because the, the only angle that commentary ever tends to point out is that sort of soft outside foot position angle, which like it's a useful angle, but a lot of it's just, it's not really an angle. A lot of the times I'll, do it like fairly lightly, unless it's a really extreme sort of angle. Like if you've watched uh, one of John McDessie's knockouts, I don't remember who it was, but there was a point where he stepped like super deep outside his lead foot, basically stepped behind him and cracked Shane him with the Campbell. left. Oh, wow. Uh, even I didn't know that. <laughs> I used to watch every fight. The McDessie fight. understander has, has logged on. I respect you so much. But yeah, that's like, that's one of those times where an angle really, really like, the, the outside angle rather, it really contributes to like the sort of aims that an angle tends to, but usually it's just shortening the, the rear hand, right? Like if you take a soft outside foot, foot position, you're not really hitting them as they turn because they don't really have to turn. They're just, you just have your foot on the outside of their foot. So it shortens the, the rear hand, but nothing else. Uh, but in close stance, you actually tend to see a bit more dramatic angles because people aren't as one note with the angles that they want to take. Uh, it's reasonably easy to shut down guys just stepping to the outside of your lead foot really obviously to throw the the rear hand like even bad fighters know how to shut that down you can just back up and it shuts that down so there's a lot more like pivoting inside people's stance which is the way to square them up or uh, pivoting off as they step in to the other direction so that they're still in their stance but they're facing the wrong direction in general it's just you know which way are they facing which it fits for both southpaw and orthodox and i'd imagine in boxing it probably matters more because a, there aren't as many kicks, so the exchanges, the, the angles that you take there matter more because there are just more of them and they matter more. But also just because people are smarter about it. Uh, with regard to the inside angle stuff, uh, you know I was going to talk about this guy, but Rafael Asuncao is one of those who <laughs> understands the inside angle like actually super well. Uh, his fights with TJ Dillashaw was a, a, were a good example where he, not only does he like jab and hook from the inside angle, he did that a lot against uh, Munoz as well, but... When um, Dillashaw would like try to step in with that really soft outside angle, he just pivot into him and hit him with the right hand. So, like, um, it's kind of tough to explain on audio because if you go back and I think the gifts might be dead for the Asuncao article I did, which is a shame. Uh, but when Dillashaw tried to just like step in really hard with the outside angle, Asuncao would just kind of turn, would pivot to face him, and and Dillashaw would be the one who was squared up and not even facing him. And Asunsa would just hit him in the face as the, the, uh, the straight wasn't in a particularly good position to land. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do from the inside angle. It's just, you know, boxers tend to be better at it. It's really just kind of also an extension. Uh, it's uh, the primary reason is always the rule set. 
And by extension, it also leads to things like the, the difference being different. Like if you watch at MMA, everyone everyone knows that MMA fighters usually fight from like 15 feet from across <laughs> one another. Yeah. And uh, in kickboxing, the distance is shorter because they want to kick, uh, open with kicks and enter range of kicks and uh, enter range of uh, kick feints, etc. And in boxing, you may find fights where both fighters just basically stand in the phone booth and exchange punches because they, the rule set allows them to stand basically in the kitchen uh, from across one another. They're just basically almost with their noses touching and, and then throw punches. And for a wrestling mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, I mean, yeah, sure, you can tie up, but then tie-ups are usually just kind of like a way to stifle someone's offense if you uh, do not like the feel of being in the pocket with said person, and then you just get separated. Uh, it wasn't the case in old timey boxing, which is uh, which is why it's so much better than the, the than boxing nowadays. Uh, but uh, I mean, what are you gonna do? But yeah, um, there's also like um, I think it uh, would make sense to point out like what sort of attacks usually are are usually available the the most immediately available attacks to you from open stance naturally we've pointed out the outside angle and the inside angle the hook the jab the straights down the middle but also like linear kicks open up very easily from that uh, open stance matchup uh, yep. round kicks up rear leg round kicks open up very well and uh, yeah those are the just the obvious things that everyone tends to over focus on and uh, really, the answer with open stance matchups is uh, not really to focus on the small details so much when you want to understand them and break them down. Everything stays the same, really. The fundamentals stays stay the same. Uh, it's just that uh, some of the uh, small small little details become different. And uh, yeah, one one thing about MMA uh, I would like to point out is that in in striking sports, it's um, it's really an uncomfortable motion to pivot to your power side. Like step across yourself and then pivot out like to your power side, uh, while pivoting out to the to the side that uh, stands forward to basically pivoting with your back facing uh, that direction towards your pivoting towards which you're pivoting is much easier. It's much more natural, and so naturally with MMA where you have to learn so much, just so much more, and being able to just uh, zero in and so much more techniques. It's uh, it's it makes sense that uh, fighters would be more hesitant to pull off motions like this and take uh, angles like uh, you see fighters in striking striking sports take. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I was just thinking in, in terms of striking as well. Another difference could be you know how bladed a stance is versus how square mm -hmm. a stance is. Um, that really changes the strike selection and defensive styles and the angles and everything. Um, it's the way that you're positioning your body. So it's not always just about which foot is forward. Sometimes it's about which way you're carrying your weight. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to interpret that that would take the full length of the explanation that has happened to get into deeper. Yeah, the, like the open stance is weird because you can explain it very easily and uh, kind of like get the gist of it across very simple, like in a very short amount of time. But also there's also tons of little nuances that... Mm -hmm. It may take a whole day to explain. Yeah. I mean, that's just fighting in a nutshell, really. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting, the the difference between MMA and boxing specifically is that there's a lot more, especially in the open stance, because guys don't tend to hand fight as actively in close stance because there isn't that lead hand clash, but it's a lot more grabby. Uh, a lot of the guys we consider strong lead hand operators in MMA are guys like uh, Leon Edwards or... Um, Robbie Lawler or Dustin Poirier, a lot of them do a lot of grabbing or hand fighting uh, off the lead hand. And it's a lot more active in terms of a grabbing sense than in a boxing sense. Where a lot like the most you can do with the boxing glove generally is to like paw the guy's hand away and then you try to take advantage of the gap immediately. With, um, with MMA, you can do a lot more like intentional grabbing, dragging it down and hitting them. Uh, and it plays a lot better, I think, with the sort of lead hand work that fighters don't tend to do in southpaw orthodox. Uh, like mm -hmm. if you really, if you look at the vast majority of southpaw jabbers, I'll put it this way, just bothering to jab in open stance tends to completely confuse the hell out of their opponent. It's incredibly rare. Uh, Arnold Allen, for instance, I don't really like, I think he's fine. He's really solid, but it's just the weirdness of a southpaw just jabbing constantly that tends to confuse a lot of people. Uh, Julio Arce is another one, although I kind of think he's better. But uh, he like it kind of just takes having a functional jab from the open stance to really, really, really annoy people. Uh, lots of Dustin Poirier's resurgence was just based entirely off that, playing it off the hand fight and the right hook. Like There's a lot more threats, I think, in MMA that you have to deal with, which, again, dovetails with what uh, Tuman said, that there's a lot more to learn. Uh, but, again, it comes down to the rule set, you know, the gloves being more grabby, uh, lots more opportunities to grab and go into the clinch or grab and set up takedowns. Yeah, and it's also just a very natural motion to grab a hold of someone and then blast them with your power hand. Yeah. If you, like, Google Street Fights... World star. Mo <laughs> yeah, mo most brawls are just uh, a guy reaching out and grabbing someone with their lead hand and then blasting them with, the, with their power hand. It's just something that comes naturally stuff. to a lot of people, so... It's high level. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, in terms of wrestling, it's uh, I, it might not necessarily be that complicated because, like, in terms of like a preference, yes, um, there's definitely different things that you can do from different stance matchups that I can uh, detail pretty quickly. Um, but also consider that most wrestlers at a high level are ambidextrous; they can mm -hmm. do pretty much everything with both with either leg out front. Um, that's something they learn really quickly. See, that's how you know I'm not a good wrestler is because I can't do that. Um, I'm very <laughs> dependent on leading with my yeah. right leg. Yeah, and by ambidextrous, you don't mean necessarily they are able to do everything with the, both their limbs. It's just that they're their comfortable feet. from both stances. Yeah. yeah, they can go either way with their feet when they wrestle. Um, and that helps a lot. So basically, in terms of stances available in wrestling, similar to what we just talked about, um, you can be squared up or you can be what they call sugar foot, which is, you know, really favoring one side. Yeah. It makes it sound like a thing you don't want to do, but I assure you it is, it is beneficial. I mean, <laughs> seeing as boxing like, likes to call itself the, the sweet science, mm -hmm. everything boxers do is always like, they, they're always praised for their slickness. I mean, I guess it makes sense that wrestlers want, want some of that action. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that as well. Seems like I'm being, being teased when they say, oh, you're leading sugar foot. I'm like, oh, geez. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> basically, the same similar dynamic that you're considering, right? It's a open stance, closed stance. I, I was explaining wrestling to somebody, like a, a takedown to somebody with those terms. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like how they talk about it in striking. But it's very helpful. Um, it's not that commonly used in, in wrestling terms. But basically, if you're in open stance and the lead feet are lined up like that, uh, most most single legs become more prevalent. The snatch single, the swing single, 
uh, any outside step attacks because outside step attacks usually involve like a knee pull and some sort of finish uh, on the uh, open side with your with your rear hand um, or some footwork that takes that strong angle. Um, you can also, you know, like I, I've, there's a lot of nuance to it, obviously, but like one example that comes to mind is like Jordan Burroughs match with um, freaking the dude that does chest drafts. Damn. The guy that caught him mega oh. is better than, I don't know. Uh, I'm almost there. Is that the no, Chinese I guy? lost it. No, 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 no. Oh. He's uh, he's Russian rust, wrestling for Belarus. Anyway, oh. it was the first match of 2019 oh. Worlds. Yeah. No. <laughs> no? Uh, the other the guy. First, first match. Of, yeah, it's, it's the guy that was worse than him that he replaced. Um, the uh-huh. first match of 2019 Worlds, Burroughs keeps shooting this this low double, these straight on shots, and this guy keeps chest wrapping him and head pinching him and hitting all of his favorite counters. He's like, good, good. You know, shoot low in front of me. That's perfect. So Burroughs eventually decided that he could not just shoot straight on him anymore, although he was getting points on some of these exchanges. So he's like, I, I could just, I could, we could just go back and forth and I could just outpace you, um, which is essentially what happened. But yeah, really crucial getting the lead at one point was he, he took this strong outside angle just by like getting to a two one one, just like posting and just you know pulling on the tricep, but he did it with uh, the lead the lead feet lined up. Um, that's how he's able to get that strong angle outside. So angling outside and wrestling um, with like the angles that you'll see in like a boxing match or something or MMA even that harsh of an angle is very uncommon. But any any sort of little advantage like an outside step or or some sort of pivot outside off a post and a pull, you know, a two one one or an arm drag, something like that. That can be a big deal. So that's a more available there. Like I said, the swing single, a snatch single, outside step attacks. And then most of your traditional stuff that people are doing in the United States is going to come from the closed stance, um, your high crotch and, and your double leg. Um, also, a lot of your hand fighting is a lot easier from, from that closed stance or a square stance just because uh, you know the way that you need to be uh, you know, pulling. There's a lot of backwards motion and you want to pull them into you for a good penetration step. And it's just facts that a good penetration step through their base is going to be easier with a closed stance. Um, so for me, like for, as someone who really only <laughs> shoots uh, righty, um, if I have that stance matchup, I'll go swing single. If I have the other stance matchup, I'll shoot a bad high crotch and get guillotine. Um, so <laughs> it's like live, yeah, live or die also- by which foot they're leading by, which is why you need to hand fight and, and, and manipulate them to get them to step. Um, or you could just wrestle square and, uh, you know, take your angles a little easier because you're wrestling square. You can shift your weight more easily from side to side and, uh, you know, pull them in a little bit more effectively. But the other thing is if you've ever, you know, learned how to do a stance, first thing I do when I teach like kids, when I, when I coach kids is I have them stand with their feet really far apart, but not elongated at all. And I push them backwards. (laughs) (laughs) And then I have them stand the other way and I push them that way. Um, and then I make, then I have them take a more diagonal stance and I push them both ways and I see, you see, and they go, oh, yes. So as you're squared up completely, you're not going to be as strong in certain, in certain ways. So you have to kind of, you know, modify your positioning as you go, but the stances are a lot more fluid in wrestling than they are in, um, in striking sports, even though like it is common to switch. It's not really like switching in wrestling. It's just like you take steps and now you're in a different spot. Oh, one more thing. Um, this, this is relatively new to me and it's definitely not a super American thing to do. It's kind of newer in the United States. The Penn state guys do it though. They're definitely a team that picked up on it. Um, these knee pound entries, um, they are, they're difficult. They're very difficult, but that is essentially if I am intending to attack your right side, I basically take this penetration step with the other leg and I create a pivot point off that first knee pound step 
outside of your base. So it's not the full penetration step. It's taking one in front of the person, pivoting off of that to step up and take the angle outside to the other way. So you basically, it's, it's like a shift, you know, it's like I a shift in striking. I think it's very common in Sambo because uh, in Sambo they, they have jackets on. And mm-hmm. so like straight on penetration steps are very difficult to pull off. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's also one of the reasons why my grandfather has no knees now. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's genuinely extremely hard to pull off. And you're, you're it's genuinely extremely hard yourself off your, of your other knees. Um, but yeah, yeah. Coach, uh, Coach Jay Lavalley, J-O Wrestling on, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. He's very popular on social media, but more than some sites and others, but he, first of all, he's an insane athlete. He's ridiculous. Um, he, he does everything perfectly, but he shows a lot of like knee pound stuff uh, on his channel. And like, that would be great for me because I could, I could hit it without the stance matchup. Uh, but you, you gotta be able to shoot ambidextrously essentially, cause you need to have a good penetration sh- step on both sides to be able to work that because you're not going to get where you need to be. So, um, there are definitely nuances to it. And there's also nuances in the hand fight, um, you know, just with limbs available, you know what I mean? I was talking about, you know, arm drags and posts and, you know, two on ones and stuff like that. Same, same deal. Um, also, you know, stuff like, you know, shrugs and slide buys, that's going to depend on, on the arm matchup as well. Cause you need to be able to shut them by, um, to your near side. You know what I mean? You can't, you know, cover that angle the same way. So similar considerations, but you can manipulate stance a lot more easily in wrestling than you can. Um, in striking sports, you can literally take yeah, someone's and arms and pull them and make them step. And out your the new reasons. Stance. Also, another reason for why in striking stance switching is rarer than in wrestling, it's because since the dynamics change up, uh, if uh, both fighters constantly change stances, the fight becomes like bloodbath chaos because mm-hmm. <laughs> they con- they are constantly creating new openings with each stance switch. And it's why uh, TJ Dillashaw's and Max Holloway's drop shifts are so. Are so incredibly effective because they just take a step, slight step forward then dip then they st- uh, switch stances into sort of like a a more squared up southpaw stance from which they are able to bang the body and then open up with different strikes to the head and combinations to the uh, and various body head combinations and uh, TJ Dillashaw's high kick off a drop shift also another uh, neat trick that he knows and yeah, and in boxing, genuine, generally what you see is like boxers gen- generally just stick to one single stance from which they're able to fight well against different matchups. They- we lost him. I was wondering if it was just me. Well, he's either going to finish his thought or we're going to move on to the next question. Those are pretty much the only options. So. Thank you, Suman. <laughs> the next question <laughs> is from Evan and Lee. One sec, I'm going to send him something to make sure he knows that he's out. going to read the question. Okay. Are there certain fighters you find to be fascinating studies because of something weird or unique about them or their career? For example, George Foreman, because he had two boxing careers, with one as a young man and the other as an old man. I think that's probably similar to uh, Muhammad Ali, um, his, his pre- and post-jail careers right he's a very different fighter um he gone um he has the link he knows where to find uh, us apparently his power went out That's okay shame. okay we we, we, we will we'll, we'll soldier on um so sure i'm gonna let you i'll let you take the lead on this one because i got nothing to spring to mind right now <laughs> yeah in mma i'm well known for my love of old brazilians um and 
I mean, a lot of it's just because they tend to be the sort who kind of, uh, so obviously everyone who's subscribed is probably more into MMA than other sports. And it kind of becomes a given that volume is the meta. Uh, it's not necessarily like that in every other sport, uh, whether it's, you know, it's had a lot more time to develop. So you've had more like, for instance, Mayweather types who could just, you know, limit the stuff that the other guy can do meaningfully. And that way it turns to like Mayweather did one thing, but the other guy did no thing. So obviously Mayweather wins. Uh, but in MMA, it's a lot more like, you know, Holloway, Dillashaw, like they're really, really good at it. But the meta they're doing is just a really elevated version of what ev everyone else wants to be. Where if you look at the really old guys, they're the ones who don't have the physicality to really deal with stuff in the same way, which means, uh, for instance, well, I already mentioned Rafael Asuncao, but he's probably the best example of this uh, because at Bantamweight, 38, 39 year olds, they're just not that common. Uh, it's a really young, dynamic division. Uh, it's a division where, like, for instance, guys like Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw, who are like really all just movement and volume, uh, they really thrive there for a reason, right? Like, you really need those traits. You need a high pace to succeed. Pretty much everyone at the top of Bantamweight now is that way. And there's just this random old dude who's not really doing anything super complex, it looks like, but he's just making them look like complete buffoons for no reason. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's what makes, like, in terms of like the question being like guys who've had interesting career considerations. I think that's probably the interesting one that like carries through. Uh, Francisco Trinaldo's one who like, for instance, I don't, yeah, I don't really think he was like a great volume limity fighter necessarily, but he was a really good counterpuncher. Uh, and it really limited the amount of work that his opponent could do on him, even if he wanted to push the pace. So he was a, you know, pressury southpaw double attacker sometimes, or sometimes he just take that inside angle we were talking about and crack guys really hard, but guys couldn't enforce volume on him very easily. Um, one interesting example, we've talked a lot about Aldo uh, and maybe the best credit to the people that were training him was uh, Juicia Formiga, who had a lot of uh, flyweights, also a super young division most of the time. Uh, it has a lot of like, you know, guys like Joseph Benavides who are like really dynamic and do a lot of combo work and lots of ath athlete entries and stuff. And Formiga pretty much just uh, did a lot of limiting work in that sense because he was not the best athlete around. He was like fine, but not like, you know, it's, he wasn't DJ or he wasn't uh, Joe B. He wasn't not powerful. Close. Yeah. So his attributes were different because he wasn't that sort of guy. Uh, and his career path sort of informed that, right? Like he really learned to deal with guys like Davis and Figueredo, who are just really scary athletes in every single way. And he figured out how to control them. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the trend for me. It's tough to think of a ton because MMA doesn't really have a... Like, MMA careers tend to be kind of one note, but that's the one that I have. Mm-hmm. No, welcome back. Stupid fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is your audio recording back? We'll see what happens with that. Yeah, we're causing Silas a lot of pain. Oh, for sure. Um, so, Tune, are there any fighters that you find to be fascinating studies because something weird or unique about them or their career, like George well, Foreman? Did, did, did you? Uh, well, you mentioned George Foreman again. But yeah. I mean, sure, I'm just talking about a bunch of Brazilian MMA fighters. <laughs> yeah, of course you did. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, uh, Jersey Joel Walcott's uh, career is certainly fascinating. Or, uh, he was a boxer in... I believe it was the 50s or the 60s. I don't remember, but he was an old-timey boxer. But, and uh, his career is interesting because um, he arguably went out uh, of the sport having taken a dive. <laughs> he like basically 
again in one of his uh, final matches he took the money and ran essentially and uh, well his whole career is interesting because he fought uh, well he was extremely poor and uh, had uh, a family with a shit ton of kids as uh, everyone did during those times and he would uh, usually fight immediately after having finished his shift at a factory or wherever wherever else he was working at the moment and then he would come in and box uh, hungry, having not eating en- eaten anything during the day, and uh, somehow managed to win, and usually win in a very impressive fashion. And Basically just an example of how like dog-tough fighters were during that era. And uh, certainly an example that uh, some people on- online would be uh, <laughs> would be compelled to glorify because <laughs> because uh, being poor is the best base for fighting. Uh, I guess, but, but yeah, like being growing up in a gulag is the best base for MMA. But uh, yeah, yeah, really, the ghetto, like the favelas, the, the favelas, um, <laughs> the jungle, the uh, whatever, the fucking uh, gutter, the, the field, the fucking field <laughs> that's where, in which I live, <laughs> the halfway <laughs> <But> yeah. houses. <laughs> Really like uh, Jersey Joe Walker is really a deconstruction of that notion because uh, the reason why he didn't wasn't able to have his big break until he was well into his uh, late 30s and even 40s uh, is uh, because he was so poor and he had to break uh, take constant prolonged breaks from training and yet he was gifted enough to still have these incredible performances and uh, find success later in his career and it's just one example and uh, it's kind of like He's kind of like the real Cinderella man, like the other Cinder- the other Cinderella man, whose um, story was dramatized in the movie, uh, who, which is also called Cinderella Man, is about what was his fucking name? I'm blanking. Don't I'm blanking me, on bro. his name. <laughs> Cinderella Man. That was his name. Yeah, that was his name. His name was Cinderella Man. It was uh, yeah, it was uh, Jim Braddock. He he mm. was a heavyweight, but really like. By modern MMA standards, he was really like a lightweight, and uh, many boxers during that era were. And uh, he was famously like uh, broke, uh, also suffered uh, multiple injuries that left him unable to work and fight. And yet he still uh, still was able to uh, conquer the heavyweight championship of the world. And uh, that's why he was able to do it. Because he had that poverty grind set. Yeah. yeah, he had the poverty grind set and he, he wasn't able to punch correctly because his, both his hands were broken. <laughs> yeah, many... I mean, boxing is like uh, like the oldest uh, professional sport, uh, professional combat sport on, uh, on Earth. And so naturally it has lots of stories like that. Also, everything... Uh, happened and mo- most of the most most of boxing history happened in America and uh, as a result everything was recorded and we have plenty of documented evidence and that's why we have so many examples from boxing and Foreman is also fascinating because yeah he had two careers he he's had this religious epiphany from suffering a heat stroke <laughs> during his fight with Jimmy Young after which he became an evangelist and uh well, basically, you can just go and watch his documentary. He has a documentary. It's very interesting. Go and watch that. I'm not going to hog up the airtime talking about how interesting Foreman is. But, mm-hmm. uh, I guess Foreman is interesting the same way all the other fighters are interesting that I've uh, uh, presented here. And Oh, no. What is he going to say? 
Mrs. Obama, get down. Uh, but Fighters who yeah, lose gonna, power and have to adapt their I mean, careers. Maybe. I think, it was, <laughs> yeah, I think it was going in the direction of fighters who were um, disadvantaged growing up. Or, you know, I was had going those with the power of, outage theme. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, that's a good point. They were disadvantaged because their power was always going out. <laughs> this is why TMN is so smart. Yeah, I mean, I think you could you could make the point with MMA, too, especially, again, with all the Brazilians. Uh, I mentioned with Formiga and Aldo, uh, Henan Barral, um, their coach, Andre Pedroneras, Dede, uh, he was really the guy to really make them fight, in a sense. Uh, he, you know, I'm probably stealing a bit from the piece that Ryan is working on about Nobu Nyo, uh, allegedly. I mean, it, it, he's working on it, but it's, you know. It's Ryan, so it's going to be super in depth and come out in about Coming a decade. Twenty twenty four. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, he was a super influential figure precisely because he could really make up for the fact that these kids didn't really have a lot of time to train or the resources to train. And it really does like you could say they came from poor environments to train, and they did. But it really took those things being sort of equalized for it to work out, which again takes away from the whole. You know, if you come from the ghetto, you're really motivated thing. It, it's stupid. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are MMA examples as well. It's just a much younger sport, so boxing obviously has more. Uh, a lot of MMA fighters tend to be more like, you know, uh, come from more middle-class areas pr- because the sport pays awfully. It's not really like a, a thing of, you know, middle-class people like it more. It's just if you want an occupation, MMA is not a smart place to go. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't contribute much to this because I don't really like fighters oh, no. based on, like, career Oh, that's stuff. a good point. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, you know, I like how they fight. Um, typically, and a lot of the time, you know, I'll just latch on to anybody I see who are like, oh, I like what you do. And that's just my boy from then on. And uh, half the time, like, these are just like random freaking dudes on the prelims. And, you know, I follow them for like five years and they're doing pretty well. And then by the time they actually get into a situation where people would hear about them, they're not good anymore. Um, that is that is typically where I end up. And it, it happened again a little bit to us with our, our ACA guys. Oh. Um, they all befell terrible fates as soon as we started giving them it. attention. Um, yeah, and Shabli isn't doing bad either. I mean, he's in Bellator. He's probably going to be getting a title shot sometime soon, you know, within a fight or two. But you know what I mean? It's just like it's uh... you, you never get to have nice things. Um, so that's the kind of career I like is a guy, guy who shows some promise that, uh, never ends up being any good. Yeah. I mean, there's also a reason why I turned my thing, like the career rock into like the actual fighting part is like, if fighters were just old and bad, it's not that interesting or else I'd like, like, I don't know who's old and bad. Glover Teixeira, like he's okay. Glover Teixeira is fine, but I don't really like him more I, than I the average I do like fighter. when they, they win in spite of being old, but then I'm also like mad at the people that didn't beat them. Cause I'm like, you, that shouldn't, you shouldn't have let that happen, bro. Yeah. Pretty much. Like, you You have to be old and cool. You can't just be old. Uh, Yeah, it's not really as much of a narrative thing for me as much as it is, like, the circumstances creating that. I think, actually, I just thought of this, um, but Callan Cater and Rob Fawn actually have some interesting things about their, like, the way they came up. Because the way I understand it. Cater's bird. Yeah, uh, that's something. But the way I understand it is Cater's been boxing since, like, a really, really young age, where Fawn actually only figured out, like, he actually only discovered fighting as a sport in general, as like 21, 22, super late for a fighter, especially late for like an elite battle. the one that was like delivering pizzas or something yeah, like that? Yeah, Fawn is the one who's delivering on pizzas. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And I think you could really, it's one of the, it's another one of those examples where you can really see it in the way that they fight, right? 
Uh, everything Font does is like he's not as comfortable under fire and pretty much everything he does is like it mitigates things by just like walking through them in like a kind of crude but clever way. Um, for instance, like they have really weirdly similar processes, but Cater's a lot more comfortable sitting on the counter and defending, which makes sense because he's been doing it for a lot longer and from like his formative years where Font is like he's a lot more jab, 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 walk forward, jab, do more jabbing, and limit things off that jab, like the little frames he does. And the that clinch. pizza boy grinds it. <laughs> Where he was delivering pizzas in the gulag. But, yeah, I think there, I generally mostly find it interesting when these circumstances lead to, like, real tangible things in their skill yeah. sets. It's just not really just, you know, they're old, so they're cool, really. But yeah, I mean, there are a couple examples in MMA that are like fairly clear. I think Cater and Font is one of the more interesting ones because like the camp that they're at pretty much only has those two as real legitimate talents. And they both have very similar ways of thinking about fighting in a way. Uh, and they've just developed in very different ways because of the way that they've, camp they've come up, if that makes sense. Like Cater can afford to be a bit more complacent where Font just has to go, go, go because offense is the first thing you develop and defense is the last thing you develop and caters had time to develop it mm -hmm. this, this is barely relevant this, i mean it is but it's just i don't know why this is what i'm thinking of and not any other examples i'm sure i feel more strongly about but yeah who's really made a good impression on me lately is edson barboza um i respect the hell out of that dude because he was just going through it for <laughs> a long time yeah. i mean his career was looking dire just making the same mistakes over and over again, taking crazy beatings and like just like really not seeming like things were ever going to turn around. Um, but he hung in there, man. He figured it out a little bit. Um, he's not like dramatically better and doesn't like not have those holes anymore, but he's, he's really found a way to not, and not let that sink him. And it's really not the way it usually happens. Like, yes, he's become a counter puncher, which is always what happens. Um, <laughs> Like just generally, he just you know figured out Ringcraft a little bit more, figured out his positioning a little bit more, and he really hasn't lost that much of his pop or anything like that. So, um, credit to him for staying together physically and improving technically. I mean, that always impresses me is when a fighter doesn't get that much less athletic that far into their career. I mean, you got to be really taking care of yourself, and that shows um, probably great genetics, but also like amazing discipline. Like uh, when I interviewed Zach Makovsky. Um, I just, you know, I knew, I knew how old he was. I knew he's almost 40 and I knew how long he'd been doing it. Then I thought about it again. And I just like, remember watching his last fight and like, dude, like you, like, I know you have a lot of injuries, too. but you, Jeez. yeah, flyway, like you are like still in amazing shape. You're so strong. Um, you're moving these guys around. You're doing, you're hitting lat drops off single legs. Like you're doing everything. It's like, you're you know, probably a better striker than you've ever been. Um, hitting these huge intercepting knees. It's just like, just so much, so much respect uh, when they, when they clearly are like super professional and take themselves super seriously, like that kind of thing, um, that, that really wins me over. I just, you know, cause I understand like that's, that's an unreal amount of discipline for such a long time. And those are the people that are really in it for the long haul. Um, so much respect. Yeah. I mean, right. Barbosa is kind of a weird case just because like the first time he went down to featherweight, it was incredibly scary. He looked like a skeleton with muscles painted on and yeah. he lost to Danny. He didn't actually lose, but he went to an uncomfortably close fight with Danny. Gay and it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like the Aldo path. It's like, he's really grown into it in a weird way. Like it shouldn't be possible the way that he's done it. Uh, and beating Burgos, it made me sad because I like Burgos more, uh, but you know, it's a great fight though. Yeah, it was. It's just incredibly a tough sad. one for both of them, but Barboza kind of took it over. You know what I mean? Unfortunate. Such a shame. Very cool. 
very cool with him. I know, like, I don't want it to have to happen to somebody I like, but um, it's pretty awesome that that he that he did it. Pretty um, much. Let's do our let's do our last question. Um, so this question is from Hafid Darbaki, who I have not heard from before. I don't think, um, and we took a little while on this one, so my apologies. Um, so first, uh, Hafid said, "I noticed that you guys had no content on Kazushi Sakuraba." I'll stop you right there. We do have content on Kazushi Sakuraba. Um, you must not have seen our top 20 greatest fighters of all time articles because the first one that came out was Kyle McLaughlin's article about Sakuraba. It was a very long, long career piece. Um, very, uh, that's, that's your guy. If you want to talk about, you know, old school or like classic MMA stars, you know, from, from the olden days. I mean, he's, he's a combat sports historian. He's all about that stuff. But Kyle did a great piece on Sakuraba and Fedor. I feel like people like both of those guys together, um, <laughs> like just the heroes of, of uh, Pride. But yeah, but then he said that made me think about your content on Pride and JMMA and overall. True, we don't talk about it that much. Um, he said I am going to request that some content of Kyoji Horiguchi. Oh, I read that wrong, but wants wants, wants us to talk about Kyoji Horiguchi <laughs> and you know more about Ryzen in general. But for this question, we can just talk about Horiguchi. Um, this is my chance to plug the well, a couple of things I did. Um, I'm not sure if I watched it for this, but um, he fought uh, Hiromasa Okikubo twice, and I believe maybe I watched that one with Zach Mikowski, his fight with uh, with uh, Horiguchi. But we also did a um, I did a Demetrius Johnson resume review where I watched uh, the Horiguchi fight as part of that, and that was like one of DJ's toughest tests. People remember it with like the buzzer beater armbar, which like made it seem like he was in perfect control the whole time. He ended up taking over pretty hard towards the end of the fight, but it was really competitive. Um, Horiguchi gave him, gave him great looks. So um, just off the top of my head, things that make Horiguchi great. Um, one, he's a great athlete, very physical, um, has good competencies in most areas at this point, which he didn't uh, totally have at the time that he fought DJ. Like he, a lot of his scrambling was instinctive and he's able to like... <laughs> athlete his way out of situations but um something just off off the jump just tactically that really works for him is he's a blitzing puncher uh, he can cover a lot of space in a combination and he's a great round kicker and those two things work together so well <laughs> because if you're a big blitzing puncher people are probably going to move backwards uh or they're going to try to take an angle and guess what you know when they round run out of space or when they try to go in a direction you can round kick him and he can do it with both legs um, and he understands the dynamic and he you can control his entries and faint his leads and, and, you know, turn things into round kicks. And, um, I think there's more to him when it comes to like counter punching and pocket boxing and stuff like that, that makes him uh, really good. And I would also like to plug Ryan Wagner's piece. I think it was back when we were still at MMA sucker, but it was about, it was like something Kyoji Horiguchi breakdown, like something about the point karate meta, some fancy title. Um, but you know, try to find that because that's a, that's going to be a good Horiguchi article. Um, but yeah, what 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 do you think about him? His skill set, his striking. Yeah, I haven't watched as much of him as I should, just because I'm kind of a normie. Uh, I'm relying on you here. Yeah, I mean, you should. Uh, that, that's always a good decision. No, but I've watched enough of him to get a decent gauge of his game. Yeah, I think it's fair to say he's kind of the broad Robert Whitaker mold with that sort of karate boxing type thing. They're actually grouped together fairly often. Uh, and I think what really sets both apart is that they're fairly defensively competent in the pocket. Uh, one thing Horiguchi does really well is that little weaving left hook off his entry where he, you know, steps yeah. in, weaves as guys try to counter and 
just hits them on the way out and angles out. So that's just the kind of thought that he puts into a style that I think people think of is probably a bit riskier than it is. Um, he did get cracked on the entry, I believe, by Kai Asakura is the guy that walked him into yeah. it. Yeah, like it's a lot tougher early in a fight, I would say, when you don't have a great read on the counter. So the guy's going to choose and the speed of the other guy, how reactive he is. If a guy just pulls the trigger instantly and clacks you, then it's it's rough because uh, you're walking right into it. But the way that Horiguchi does it, it's a replicable, it's a very reliable way to fight, which is why, like, you know, same reason the guys like Robert Whitaker, right? They could get caught early in fights by guys like Darren Till and then get hit, like, once after that total in the entire fight. So it's a strong game. Um, pretty much just what you said, the round kicking helps him a lot. I believe he round the, the rematch with Asakura. He just kicked him in the leg a whole bunch of times yeah. and then knocked him out. <laughs> so, you know, easy fair fight. enough. Yeah. Yes, easy fight. Uh, yeah, a strong skill set, very strong striker. Uh, he beat Darian Caldwell uh, largely yeah. by just sitting up against the fence and hitting him while Caldwell held on to him there, like the, the little leg mount. So that was Dude, cool. Dude, everyone thought that the the cage was going to be a more difficult matchup. I disagree. Um, well, obviously, the cage ended up being the more difficult fight, but inherently, um, when it comes to wrestling in the ring, um, that's like a nightmare. Like, I would love to be the wrestler. Uh, fighting in a ring against against a striker because wall walking is impossible wall walking is so hard and there's this huge cheat code that you know when you go to reach for a double against the cage there's a wall so you have to scoop behind the legs you know what i mean you have to you know find that oh, that, but with that the space ropes, there's the gap but the ropes you can reach right through <laughs> and get behind and get a body lock or get a double or whatever underhook under the ropes like that's like a huge bonus you know what i mean that's that's really great um so yeah that is like a massive advantage that the, the case does not replicate but i think what ended up happening is um this caldwell burnt out his energy trying to wrestle in the ring honestly he couldn't pace himself as well because things were more fluid um and you know horikuchi submitted him um he also hit him on the lead a decent amount and because i think it was also a smaller area than the cage was for bellator for their bellator fight but yeah then in the bellator fight Caldwell was much more conservative and he just tried to lean on him against the cage. And like, I think he got outstruck from like a submissive position. You know what I mean? Like basically the same as getting outstruck off your back. Um, but yeah, they gave it to Horiguchi and you know, a lot of people were worried that they're going to do what it seems like judges would do in that situation, yeah. but they actually scored it correctly and gave it to him. So that was awesome. Yeah. Did you see his fight with uh, attention? I watched it. I don't remember a ton about it. It was a very impressive no. showing for an MMA crossover for a kickboxing though. That I remember. Mm-hmm. That it should not mm-hmm. be possible to do that. That it was very strong. You were talking about those like weaving combinations, like like his left hook. He was actually finding the mark a decent amount. Um, but what was happening is you know he was overextending on a lot of his shots too. Intentions just way faster. Um, it's like I think just he was just firing off shots and like from the outside tension was more dangerous. But Horiguchi was actually doing a lot of his, his good work on the inside in the pocket. So I mean that's definitely a matchup to analyze at some point, uh, just because it's like an MMA fighter doing really well against the top three, you know, pound for pound kickboxer uh, near the same weight class. I don't know if they're exactly the same size, but yeah, no, I love Horiguchi and he, uh, being an American top team, he can wrestle offensively a bit. Um, I remember, like, I think it was right oh, after the DJ fight. Bagotinov, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he wrestled well with Bagotinov, but also um, <laughs> dumb, dumb reference. <laughs> Neil Siri. He uh, took him down for most of the fight, like wrestled him against the cage and took him down body locks and stuff like that just to kind of prove that he could. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I appreciate him a lot. And he's somebody who's had a pretty long career already, honestly. He had a good few years under him. I'm going to check that. But I think before he got started into in UFC, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, they rushed him is the thing. So <laughs> his UFC tenure probably felt longer than it was. Yeah. So it went pro in 2010 and had a, uh, how many fights is this? 12 fights, wow. 12 fights in two years. Okay. That's a lot. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's about three years, but still, um, that's crazy. Yeah. And then he had a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight UFC fights. Yeah. I guess that's about how long it felt. Um, about three years as well there. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was five years ago. <laughs> it's been a while. He's had a, a full, he's, he's basically had, you know, his, his prospect career, which I think ended when he fought DJ. You're not a prospect anymore to get a title shot. Um, and then, you know, his, post title shot veteranship and then basically his uh you know becoming one of the best fighters in the world when he won the the rising title i uh, started beating guys like uh manal cop and uh ian mccall and okikubo those those fellas um which i know he's a, you're like whatever <laughs> what kind of competition is that but um those guys are good they were yeah, doing cop good is okay at what yeah ian mccall was still decent around then too um the way it happened was funny but oh yeah was that the rip um, cut yeah, I think so. No, that was the that was the cop McCall fight. I think oh. he just knocked he knocked McCall out in nine seconds. Oh man, that's way cooler. Terrible luck. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Kai Asakura loss definitely stung. And afterward, Horiguchi was like, uh, "I have all these injuries," and Ryzen was like pressuring me to fight when I wasn't ready and wasn't recovered, and like it all kind of compounded. Um, he had a lot of excuses, and then he came back and he won super easily. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what his future is, to be honest. And uh, I know, you know, Bellator and Rising Cross promote, but, you know, is he going to fight Sergio Pettis? Because I'm would be cool. super here for that. I mean, I think I I'd that. fairly confident like take Kyoji, but that's a great fight. I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, Pettis kind of might be the tighter puncher at this point. That, that could make a difference. You know what I mean? Very possible. I think and the kicking matchup would be pretty interesting, too. Yeah, I think Kyoji has a decent advantage in the pocket, though, especially with how Sergio is usually like this uh, jab straighty boxer. And Kyoji he's also kind of a much bigger hitter. Him. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I don't really rate either Pettis brother super great defensively. Uh, yeah, he's really strong when it comes to like offensively creating openings and using his footwork and stuff. But when it gets into the exchanges, it gets hairy for him pretty often. I bet you could actually see like not the same level or you know ex- executed the same way. I bet you could actually see some similar looks. Like to to think about the Horiguchi fight um, with the Archuleta win because you know a lot of shifting, a lot of you know of weird ways of covering distance. Um, but Archuleta is not nearly as good at it. He just tries to be. <laughs> just kind of walked into Sergio's counters a whole lot. That was a. Fun We've said fight this before, Sergio. but it's definitely true um, that Archuleta fights the way that like TJ Dillashaw starts fights. You know what <laughs> I mean, like when he does all that weird outside yeah. motion, you're like, okay, like. <laughs> DJ without any of the pocket stuff. Do your pocket stuff. And he's like, nah. <laughs> I'm going to take these really long steps outside and shift my weight and throw naked kicks. I'm like, okay, well. Now that you figured it out. <laughs> That's the star you the whole time. Except like with more like high, high shots that lead into body lock situations, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. Uh yeah, but I don't have that much more to say about Horiguchi, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, we'll try to find something Japanese MMA related to talk about when it, the time comes. It's just hard to follow Ryzen's schedule. And a lot of the time they put on shows that are more kickboxing heavy. And I just I just don't 
have anything to say about it. I don't follow kickboxing. So it's yeah. like same with one. One probably puts on a ton of good kickboxing events, but I just I don't know who these people are. I can't do it. Okay. If only there was a striking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> only someone did that. Um but yeah, uh do you, do you wanna talk about UFC event at all? I mean who, it, who are you picking between Cannoneer and Gaslam? Let's just uh, do that. Yeah, I think I feel like Cannoneer's a decent pick at this point. I think so too. I'm not really sure how much his game works against Southpaw, so I think that's probably the interesting part. But he did inside leg kick Silva a bit. Uh, and Kelvin is super kickable. We saw that with the, the Izzy fight. And Izzy, mm-hmm. Izzy's a much better kicker, but he also didn't really need to do a whole lot other than kick nakedly from the outside to kick Kelvin for free a lot. Uh, and in the pocket, Kelvin's nothing defensively. Cannoneer's also nothing, but I feel like Cannoneer's probably the tighter puncher. The risk is Cannoneer's 37 and Calvin only beats people above 35. So he's in he's in the danger zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Calvin's been, not really, but he's been trying to wrestle a little bit more offensively, <laughs> like the Heinish fight. Um, and then he took like two shots against Whitaker, and he finished one of them. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, maybe he'll try to incorporate that because Cannonier is not really strong defensively as a grappler or wrestler, but... He is strong in general, and that matters. Kelvin doesn't really have an integrated wrestling game with, with his approach. He just kind of has it in his back pocket as like extra skill, but he doesn't really have it as part of what he does. And I think Cannonier is probably at the point where you need to trick him a little bit yeah. <laughs> to do that or just be really good at it. And that's ne- neither of those are Kelvin. Yeah. Hermanson kind of, like Hermanson was able to wrestle him a bit and hit him on like a German suplex at one point. And Cannonier <laughs> just kind of stronked himself up from, and Hermanson's a much better top player than Kelvin. Yeah. Kelvin doesn't have a better top player than Kelvin. Game. So that, that's going to be tough. It's like, I feel like there's a decent chance Kelvin has the better gas tank between them just because that's like half of his game, half of it's being fast and half of it's having a tank at middleweight. That tends to be enough, but Cannoneer seems like a, a step too far. I mean, one thing I will say about Kelvin is that the way that he fights tends to lend itself well to short notice appearances because, mm-hmm. you know, he's fast and he's a southpaw and he does a lot of explosive things. So guys like, especially in relation to Paulo Costa, who's like kind of lumbering and orthodox and does like very different things you're like okay they're gonna have to prepare for me and i'm the guy who just does my thing and it tends to work whatever they do if it makes sense so he's just gonna have his 25 yeah. percent chance every time uh but i think cannonier probably kicks him up and walks him into a counter i that's kind of a weird fight i actually feel a lot more confident about pantoja versus royval i know people like royval but i think pantoja is gonna like beat the crap out of him like i think that's a really bad matchup for royval i think it's worse than moreno honestly um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's some wiggle room with the way that Pantoja has been looking lately. Uh, he's mm-hmm. getting older and the Askarov fight was not super encouraging. Um, and, you know, the cop fight was mostly striking from the him. The cop fight, though, like yeah. as as weird as that was, he controlled it really well. That's true. I think it's weird because and then you saw what cop did to um Odeo Osborne to no, uh, Nicolau. Oh, yeah. Um, how, you know, it was kind of a similar dynamic where Nicolau, you know, controlling exchanges really well and being sneaky and, you know, getting his take cool takedown entries and like being like outside control man, which is kind of what Pantoja did. Um, and then cop pressured and like walked him down, like hit him with massive shots. He could not do that at all to uh, to Pantoja. So I think Pantoja, you know, while kind of being uglier mechanically um, and maybe seeming less nuanced on the feet than someone like Nicolau, I think he knows what he's doing. And it's like a much more physical presence than than someone like Nicolau. So I, I just think he's going to punish Royval. Um, and plus, he's also wrestler. a better grappler than yeah. Royval and a better wrestler. <laughs> um, so I just, 
it's one of those things where it's really hard. I know, I know Royville creates chaos, but um, a lot of the times it's people making mistakes because they heard him or like something like that. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not optimistic about this one for Royville. Yeah, I like Royville actually a lot more than most flyweights at this point, uh, mostly because Fig is dead uh, and all the other cool flyweights are old. Uh, so, I mean, Royville is cool. Fig is also old. He's yeah. both dead and old. He's old and dead. But yeah, I think Royville is generally going to struggle more with someone like Pantoja than even against someone like Moreno because Moreno is less active as a wrestler. Uh, he's a bit less pressury. Uh, Moreno, as I, if I remember correctly, a lot of what Royville did against Moreno was just like kicking him through the open side a bunch. I hit him with one good knee and just sort of pressured him. Pantoja is a bit less keen to give up space and you can just shoot if you try to pressure him way too hard. Uh, he has, uh, I think against Figueredo, he had this really nice double that Figueredo just sort of stood up out of, which was just wild. I don't trust Royval to do the same sort of thing. Um, one thing, I, I think one way people call Royval is like a, a Ferguson type. He's tiny Ferguson which it's weird because the striking kind of resembles it, but it's it's also a lot different because you haven't really seen the same sort of open side kicking arsenal. Uh, and, you know, the tools are very different, even if it's philosophically not super different, if that makes sense. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I hope Royval goes far. I, I like Pantoja a lot, but I feel like they're not really going to give him a shot at Moreno, even if he wins this, which is sad. Because, uh, you know, Askarov's in the way and he's already beaten Pantoja and probably fake mm -hmm. three at some point. Cody I think Askarov is injured. I'm not sure how healthy he can stay, so you might just get your chance That's by true. default. That's true. But then there's Cody Garbrandt, which sucks for everybody in any division. He's... <laughs> That's definitely going to... Moreno's already mentioned him. Such a shame. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just hope it's fun. I hope Royville puts up a good showing, uh, but it's a tough fight. And if Pantoja's still there athletically, and I'm not sure he is, but if he is, it's, it's a fight that I think Pantoja can figure out. I agree. Um, will I watch it? We'll see. We'll find out. <laughs> but yeah, um, thank you for answering those questions with me and Tuman. Thank you as well. You're not here, but you did a good job. And uh, yeah, thank you to our patrons for asking us those questions, but more importantly, for paying us the money <laughs> for the right to ask the questions. Thank you. That's what matters. Uh, yeah, subscribe to the Fight Set on Patreon. Check out all the different uh, you know content options we offer for your subscriptions and i encourage you not to use this one because uh you can get better things for comparable amounts of money so i think you should do that although this is the one that we can promise on the most prompt schedule it's like yeah. we do the podcast a lot they're the easiest to fill yeah and if you're just like i want to support a little bit more but also i had a question and it's like not really about buying the question it's just about being Giving in the tier money. but there's the perk that there's the question you're like all right i'll use that I think that's kind of what it is for some of these guys, but I'm not going to question your methods. Thank you anyway. Thank you. Um, All right. yeah, I think that's, that's the it. end of this one. So.